This is Joshua Holland for The Nation. I'm joined now by Luke Harding. He's the author of Collusion, Secret Meetings, Dirty Money, and How Russia Helped Donald Trump Win. Luke, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. Michelle Goldberg wrote in the New York Times that the problem with the Trump-Russia story is not a lack of evidence so much as the evidence of something, and we're not sure of the exact contours of that something, is overwhelming and hard to parse. And I have to say that there were some things in the book that I didn't know, but for the most part, I was surprised by how many of these stories I'd forgotten because, you know, it's just one thing after another for uh, over a year, and it's it's hard to keep it all track, uh, all together in your head. And I think the book is so powerful because it it puts a couple of years of reporting together in kind of one coherent narrative. Um, I often see skeptics of the Russia story taking one part of the larger whole and kind of mocking it. Uh, they'll say, for example, you know, $100,000 worth of Facebook ads are unlikely to have any impact on the election. And of course, the nature of covert action is to be covert. So we don't really know the precise extent or scope of Russia's active measures campaign in 2016. But can you give us a sense of the scope based on what we do know? Yes. Well, I mean, I think one of the things I try to do in this book is is that people are very familiar with, with the, the American heroes, anti-heroes, if you like, whether it's Paul Manafort or Carter Page or or, or Donald Trump Jr., God, God bless him. Um, but they're kind of less um, au fait with, with, with the Russians. And, and, and really, I think what we're talking about here is allegedly, uh, a kind of conspiracy with two halves. And, and the American half is kind of well documented. But what I wanted to try and illuminate was what the Russians were doing uh, and also to be contextual, to, to explain that, that if you really want to interpret what happened, whether you're a skeptic or not a skeptic, uh, last year in America, you need to go backwards, almost through a kind of wormhole towards Cold War times. And you, you need to be a sort of student of espionage and in particular um, the KGB method. And so what I wanted to do was to kind of marry some of the contemporaneous stuff that we've seen in the news with with my own reporting from from Moscow, the fact that I I feel I understand uh, Russian spydom having having suffered from it to an extent, you know, when when I was the kind of bureau chief there for for the Guardian for my newspaper and my flat was broken into and I was bugged and and, and followed around and all the rest of it, but also to, to, to look at how the KGB used to do things, because actually to to understand, you need to understand Putin and his methods. And and Putin operates in the manner of a classic KGB trained spy. Covertly, he lies about things uh, almost as a kind of operational tactic. Um, And and he uses strategies of of subterranean influence um, that that were, were tried and tested during the 60s and 70s under Leonid Brezhnev and, and so on. And so I wanted to kind of pull that together and at the same time write a kind of a nonfiction story in the manner of, of, of John le Carre, but, but one that was importantly and crucially all true. Yeah, I don't want to kiss your butt too much, but I, I have to say that the, the piece reads like a thriller. Um, sometimes reporters are, are not great at prose, and, and the, it's really a page-turner. But again, how how big is this? I, I mean, I, we don't know exactly, but do you have a sense of the contours here? I, I think it's enormous, um, but, I, but I also think that we have to be clear that, that, that Putin is not 
is not Superman. I mean, he he's not sitting in a or or, or some kind of evil villain in a in a, in a in a in a cave flicking red switches. I mean, he's essentially he's an opportunist and someone who who uh, very adroitly has taken advantage of problems in the West, divisions in American society, whether they're cultural or uh, racial or, or sort of political, and he, he sought to exploit and instrumentalize them for his own um, purposes. But I mean, I, I think I think this this is a this is a huge story. I think it's without wanting to come across as hyperbolic. I think it's bigger than Watergate because this isn't one set of Americans uh, do, doing dirty tricks to another set of Americans as it was back in back in the seventies. This is one set of Americans basically dialing in or dialing out to a kind of powerful foreign power to, to, to help it sort of cripple an opponent, uh, in this case, kind of Hillary Clinton. So, so the, the stakes are much larger. Um, and I, I think Putin has kind of done this sort of very cleverly. And I, there are also kind of really interesting questions about, about Russia's relationship with Donald Trump, how far it goes back. Uh, and, and what one thing my makes clear or seeks to make clear is that that the, the Soviets and the Russians play a very long game, and they've been interested in Donald Trump for a very long time. I think it's really important to make that point that um, that Putin is not a uh, superhuman person. There are uh, there have been some concerns among uh, Russian reformers that the way that we portray this story really helps Vladimir Putin's image as this kind of. Uh, mastermind world manipulator in in some ways he lucked out and a lot of these methods were kind of low rent i mean when you talk about sending out phishing emails that's not the most sophisticated form of hacking that there is um let me ask you this luke you'd write about and i want to stay on hackers for a moment you write about hackers and you say that there's this kind of fuzzy line between the russian government and these shady groups of quasi-criminal um, hackers. There is a need to, on the Russian side, to maintain plausible deniability, right? I mean, how is that relationship work? Have we teased that out? Well, I, yes. I, I mean, and I kind of rely to a degree on, on, on some, some very good kind of Russian uh, reporting here, in particular on Andrei Soldatov, who's written a kind of fantastic book called The Red Web, um, Andre kind of, you know, I sort of discussed this extensively with him when I was kind of writing my my hacking chapter. But but essentially, there are hackers who are kind of criminal that they do this stuff for money, uh, and they quite often they get co-opted by the FSB, which is the spy agency, and they 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 have to do these things which are essentially the state is pulling the strings. But as you say, they're kind of deniable and say that they will hack this material. Um, and someone will make a strategic decision how and when to release it. There, there are cutouts. In this case, of course, famously WikiLeaks, which published um, democratic um, uh, emails, published John Podesta's emails um, at, at a time designed a bit like a kind of bomb to cause maximum damage to Hillary Clinton. But, but the, the thing is, if you think about the kind of Russian state, it, it's not like the American government or, or, or let's say the sort of German government. It, it's, I, I mean, I wrote a previous book called Mafia State. Um, there is a bureaucracy that, that it's it sort of, it, superficially it looks like a kind of a government with a parliament and with elections and so on. But actually 
that's largely kind of decorative. But the point is that the government has a very close relationship with organized crime and in itself is kind of criminal in nature, where there, there, are, there are two projects going on at the moment in contemporary Russia. One of them is this sort of sort of revisionist influence project to to nationalist project to to project Russian power and to assert what what Moscow would sort of say is kind of is bipolarity. In other words, a, a world in which Russia is the equal of America, even though it isn't. But the other project is to steal stuff. Um, and by stuff, I mean kind of billions of dollars from from state enterprises, things like Gazprom, uh, things like um, Rosneft, the, the oil producer. And the people who sit at the top of these organizations are some of the richest people on the planet. So so the criminality is kind of hardwired into the system, but that doesn't mean that the state can't do 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 patriotic things like hacking the American election. It, it's a blurry line. You know, we have this kind of very clear delineation. Well, it's not always that clear, but a relatively clear delineation between public and private spheres, between the state and, say, the business community. Of course, we have revolving doors, et cetera, et cetera. But in Russia, it's, it's so much so much fuzzier. And time and time again in the book, you you point out that this person that met with that person in the in the Trump circle has these tentacles that that intertwine with the Russian state with the Kremlin with Vladimir Putin there's a temptation when one sees all of these stories of Trump's inner circle meeting with Russian intelligence operatives and these cutouts for the Kremlin and you see how long they've been kind of i don't know if grooming him is the right word but there's a temptation to see Trump as some kind of Manchurian candidate. You write that in reality, the relationship was likely much more transactional than that. Can you unpack that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we we need to kind of talk a little bit about the, the dossier by Christopher Steele, the former British intelligence agent. I'm about to get to really that. Few... Okay. Uh, uh, well, transactional. I mean, well, I think it is transactional. I mean, I think what you can say is is that that Donald Trump is the kind of leader that, that Vladimir Putin likes to deal with. He doesn't like people who are idealists. He doesn't believe in international law. He thinks that uh, he doesn't actually really believe that Western democracies are democracies. He thinks that they're basically shinier uh, versions of Russia, essentially kind of hypocritical. Um, and, and so he, he hates being lectured, for example, by by visiting Western leaders on human rights. He likes leaders in the mold of Silvio Berlusconi in Italy or Gerhard Schroeder in Germany uh, or, or, or par excellence Donald Trump, where, where you don't talk about abstract ideas or, 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 or kind of noble ends or, or, or civic values. You, you, you talk about deals, <laughs> you know, deals and preferably ones done over energy, um, uh, sort of bilateral deals, which are to Russia's advantage and maybe with a little sweetener on the side for your nephew or um, whoever, um, th that, that's the kind of world that, that Vladimir Putin operates in. And he genuinely thinks that practically anything can be negotiated. Uh, and if it can't be negotiated, it's a conspiracy. Um, and, and therefore, Donald Trump is a perfect interlocutor. And what we know from publicly available evidence is where, whenever they meet, they, they seem to get on terrifically. Uh, Trump seems to be more attracted to Putin, almost this kind of magnetism going on or a kind of a strange allure, more attracted to Putin than any other leader. Now, yes. now why is that? 
It is bizarre. Other Russian experts I've spoken with say that Putin sees the kind of post-World post War II international order, um, the UN, the human rights courts, even even as far as the uh, Paris Accord. These, these, the, he sees all of these things as kind of tools of Western hegemony, and he's not entirely wrong about that. I mean, uh, I think that you can make a, a serious case that that's, that's true, but they have served, I think, the greater good to a greater degree than they have than they have been a, a hindrance. Um, let, let's turn to the Steele dossier. It, it plays a huge role in this story. It's a big part of your book. Michael Steele was a, a very serious former spook. Um, how, how long was he in, in um, British intelligence? Well, he had 22 years in British intelligence. 22 uh, years. He, he, yeah. And, and he was yeah. well regarded, very well regarded in the intelligence community. You write that he's a conservative analyst who isn't prone to including like um, rumors in his reports. And the dossier really sent shockwaves through the intelligence community. But it was raw intelligence. And Steele himself thought that, you know, some of it might turn out to be wrong. Many of the things that Steele reported have since been verified by others, including yourself. But the most salacious bits, the the golden showers, the prostitutes, have not. Let me ask you this. To what degree do you think BuzzFeed's decision to publish the dossier in its entirety shaped the way it was received or the, the way that the media covered it? Well, I, I mean, it was a bold decision by BuzzFeed. I think it was the right decision to publish all of it um, because... Uh, the point was that, 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 that this this dossier or, or, or highlights or some of the kind of allegations w were swelling around, um, and and a lot of journalists, it, it, I would say, from kind of late fall of 2016, w were aware of it. I didn't actually see it until BuzzFeed published, or, although I did get an email summarizing or praising um, some of it. And the point was that it was having an impact on on the political conversation. I mean, the, the Harry Reid. Famously, the sort of um, senior Democrat wrote to Jim Comey in after getting a briefing on this stuff in uh, late August, uh, saying you, you are sitting on explosive information con containing Donald Trump, and yet you, you haven't seen fit to kind of inform the American public. And so the thing was, when everyone on sort of Capitol Hill, everyone in Washington knows about these rumors, but, but actually ordinary Americans don't, I, I think BuzzFeed did the right thing by, by, by publishing. And as you say, Christopher Steele is not saying this dossier is 100% correct. He acknowledges that some of it may be wrong, but, but his assessment, uh, as, as sort of told to me by his friends, is that, that it's somewhere between 70 and 90% right. In other words, it's mostly right. Um, and what, what he did was that the, 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 the plan A, if you like, wasn't to get BuzzFeed to publish it. In fact, I think that Chris was less than thrilled by the fact that BuzzFeed did publish it, that, that plan A was to get the FBI to, to go full out to investigate and use all of its resources to prove or disprove it. And I think what, 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 what happened was kind of, he sent his memos to the FBI and he was increasingly disillusioned by their almost kind of nonchalant response or lack of response. They just really didn't seem to be doing very much. And, and the final straw for him was when Comey announced that he was reinvestigating the um, reopening the investigation to, into Hillary's emails ten days before election day, while still keeping silent about about Trump and the far more incendiary claims that he was essentially in bed with Russia. 
So I think Steele did the right thing. Then the dossier was published, um, and the rest we know. This piece of the book, I have to tell you, made my blood boil because it's, it's just extremely clear that members of the U.S. intelligence community at the highest levels were looking very, very seriously at this dossier for a, a significant period of time and then let the ball drop. And at the same time, they actually, were... Actually, they, they, did, they, they did more than that. I mean, they, they misbriefed the New York Times at one right. point and said there was, there was nothing in it. And that, that, that almost, to me, is the most astonishing aspect, not just that they, they didn't put the foot on the accelerator, they kind of coasted along, but that they actually there was some kind of disinformation going on as well. And they said specifically that the reason that they were um, hesitant to pursue this as a, as, a, as a public matter, to go public with it, was because they didn't want to intervene in the U.S. election. And then Comey makes this announcement, and it was like the Seinfeld of announcements, right? There was actually nothing that he was reopening yeah. the case into Hillary Clinton's emails, which was a story that I never even understood the significance of. Um it is it is a maddening piece of the story. It really is, uh, folks. This is Joshua Holland. I'm speaking with Luke Harding from the Guardian about his new book, Collusion. You were already looking at the story before you met with Steele, and and before you had gotten a look at the memos published by BuzzFeed. And he kind of steered you in the right direction. He said, or in a direction, he said, follow the money. And uh, this is a central piece of this story of what we know. In broad terms, because this is like half of your book, what happens when you follow the money? Well, what, what, what happens is that, it's, it's, it's that it gets complicated very, very, very quickly, and and it's it's very hard to kind of be definitive. And in, in a way, uh, a lot of the evidence around Donald Trump and money is is circumstantial. I mean, there is a kind of factual scaffold, if you like. We, we know that Russians have been buying properties in Trump Tower. Uh, not since last week, but since 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 Trump Tower went up in the 1980s, some of these Russians were mafia people who who did time uh, subsequently for kind of felonies, um, and um, th this is a kind of recurring motif through the story of of of, of, of Russians, often, often criminal connected Russians, uh, investing in kind of Trump property. But there are other elements to it as well. I mean, one is. Is, is the thing that we were talking to Steele about, about the fact that this Russian oligarch, Dmitry Rubilov, left, very wealthy man, kind of multi-billionaire, bought Trump's Florida house in 2008 for $95 million, and leaving Trump, he bought the same property a couple of years earlier, with a $50 million profit. Um, and I spent time with Rubilov, left's press guy, who, who says that the oligarch put on a pair of ring trunks and did paddle past the property, but he, he never actually set foot in it. And bought it, discovered it had mold, demolished it, and is now reselling it in, in, in chunks. Now, now, I mean, this is someone who's very good with money, who made a fortune in the post-Soviet Union, and, and, and yet he effectively gifts Trump $50 million. Now, why would he do that? I mean, he says, nothing to see here. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, and meanwhile, there's another <clears throat> very curious story, which is a chapter in my book, which is Deutsche Bank, Germany's biggest lender, a, a bank with global pretensions, that, that lent huge sums of money to Donald Trump. Uh, same year, 2008, Trump defaulted on a major loan, $45 million, sued the bank. And, and then for reasons which are still inexplicable, the bank continued to lend to him. He still owes Deutsche Bank about $300 million. And just lastly, while Deutsche Bank is doing this out of its New York division, the same German bank in Russia is 
running essentially a kind of VIP money laundering scam where $10 billion from Moscow is, t- is, is, is sent out of the country. Um, uh, and, and this whole thing kind of explodes and the bank is, is massively fined. Um, and I, I think when it comes to the money, I think we have maybe 10, 15% of the story. And I think 85% of that story is still submerged. Yeah, and we haven't even gotten to the, you know, the casinos, which are such a prime source of money laundering tradi- traditionally, and and um, and I think that's clearly going to be a big big piece of this. When all is said and done, I think everything. Well, I don't know if everything will come out, but I I think we're going to learn a lot more before everything is is said and done. Um, as you know, I write for the Nation. There's a fair degree of skepticism about the Russia story. Some of my colleagues uh, let me ask you a few questions about that um sure. there are some like stephen cohen whose views are long held and were shaped by uh, their scholarship or their experiences with russia but there's a much larger group of skeptics on the left who are pretty transparently influenced by the idea that blaming russia or or apportioning some blame to russia for mm-hmm. trump's election absolves hillary clinton from running a bad campaign or not focusing enough on her economic message or whatever. You can find plenty of people like me who supported Bernie Sanders in the primaries, but take Russia's intervention seriously. But I can't think of a single skeptic who wasn't strongly opposed to her candidacy. Now, this combination of Russian disinformation, online trolling, cyber warfare, the things that you describe as kind of standard operating procedure are not unique to our elections. It's seen as an issue across Europe. Um, I'm wondering how the conversation differs in your neck of the woods in countries where people weren't invested in this kind of divisive primary. Like, do you see a lot of similar skepticism over allegations of Russian interference in France or Germany or Brexit or in the former Soviet Yeah, I, I, it's an interesting question. I mean, I was just... just say, um, just to clarify, my, my position is relatively straightforward. It, it's quite possible that Hillary ran a terrible campaign. Yes. And that Russia interfered. Me too. <laughs> two that's my position. Mutually exclusive. And that's essentially what I think. I mean, I don't think she was a great candidate, but I, I'm not an American. and it's, it's for you guys to kind of figure all that out. But I've got no doubt that, that, that Russia did interfere. And I think more successfully, but you say my neighborhood. Well, I think in Europe, actually, we kind of got the memo some years ago, and I, I'm speaking to you from London, uh, and London, of course, is the sort of capital where, where in 2006, two Kremlin assassins sent by Vladimir Putin, we can say this now because there's been a kind of public inquiry here, poisoned uh, a guy called Alexander Livinenko, who's a, who's a Russian dissident, an ex-FSB officer, with a radioactive cup of tea in, in, in really one of the most dramatic and astonishing murders since the, since the Cold War. Um, and this is a huge case here. It was front page news. There was a, a massive criminal inquiry by Scotland Yard, the, the, the police force in London, and uh, thousands of pages of scientific evidence. And, and basically, a, a retired judge concluded that this was a Kremlin plot. In other words, a, a decade before the US election hack, the, 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 the Russia of Vladimir Putin felt sufficiently emboldened to, to bump off people the president personally didn't like on the streets of a European capital. And, and so I think here, there's much more skepticism towards Russia. There's, uh, there's an there's a, a absolute kind of belief that Russia does do 
aggressive stuff internationally. We've seen the war in Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea. We've seen Europe's borders change by force for the first time since 1945. Um, and, and, and so I think there's, there's much less skepticism here, regardless of whether Hillary was a good candidate or not, uh, about what Russia does. And the nearer you get to the Russian Federation border, I mean, talk to, to the Baltic countries of Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, that uh, they are fearful. They are worried that they are fretting about who or what is going to be next after after the United States. Luke, I've gone over our time. Do you have two or three more minutes? Sure. Um, you write at some point you got a pitch from someone in Clinton's inner circle uh, to, for a story. You had already had that story and you didn't really follow up. Uh, another thing that that uh, skeptics on the left and the right in this country claim frequently is that this whole story has been driven by the kind of obsession of democratic partisans. What do you make of that of that claim from your perspective as a journalist who's worked on this on this story? I, I, I find it slightly bizarre. And in a way, I, I wasn't writing a book about kind of you know, domestic European politics. I was writing a book about Russia and Donald Trump very much in that order. But but I, I would just, I respect other people's views. I, I think given the cacophonous times we live in, it, it's important to be kind of polite towards uh, other ideas and, and to accept that things are kind of complicated. But, but uh, a lot of the people who are very skeptical about this narrative actually know nothing whatsoever about Russia. So far as I can tell, they've, they've not really been there, or if they have been there, they've been as tourists. They don't speak Russian. They don't read the Russian press. They are not familiar with KGB espionage, <laughs> and, and, and therefore, by all means, that they, they can be as vehement as they like about what's happening domestically inside the United States. But, but I, I think when it comes to Russia, that, that they could perhaps be a little humbler than they sometimes are. Let me let me just add my my two cents onto that. As far as the idea that the Democratic Party is driving this story, it seems to me that um, that investigative journalists like yourself, uh, Michael Steele with his dossier, which was first funded by um, conservative opponents of Trump in the uh, primaries before Democrats did kind of take over, take that over, um, has been driving the story. It's been it's been reporters shoe leather that has kept this story in the news and Trump's own actions, because, you know, this story got new legs when Trump fired the FBI director and went on television to say, I did it because of the Trump Russia investigation. This story got new legs when he told um, several Russian diplomats that he had fired Comey in order to stop the Russian investigation. It is Donald Trump who is obsessed with this story and who keeps it alive by constantly tweeting about it, constantly talking about it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So if, if you were to ask me who is driving the story, I would say investigative reporters, the intelligence agencies, um, and Donald Trump himself, first and foremost. One other common claim among Russian skeptics is that the story is being promoted by unreformed cold warriors in the U.S. And you write that Vladimir Putin, this former head of the KGB, is quite open in his nostalgia for the old Soviet Union. The, the, one of your chapter heads is a quote of, of, from Putin saying that it, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, was like the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. 
Is yeah. there a certain irony of blaming U.S. intelligence officials for being stuck in a Cold War mentality when Putin's so open about his own Cold War wistfulness? I mean, he, he wants to make I, I, Russia yeah, great I, again. <laughs> I mean, you, you can call it irony, but but let, let's be clear. This is not a kind of neocon uh, position. I'm, I mean, I, I'm basically... I mean, I'm a journalist. I describe reality first and foremost, but I guess my civic position is is progressive. I would describe myself as of the left, and 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 that means I care about things like human rights and and uh, what you might call universal values, if that doesn't seem too old-fashioned. And if you look at the domestic situation in Russia, there are no free elections. The the press and TV is pretty much under the Kremlin's thumb. Uh, dissidents. People who stick out or, or kind of annoy the regime uh, suffer consequences ranging from from minor to 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 being shot dead outside the Kremlin. And so, so I, I think we need to be kind of mindful of that. But just in terms of the kind of Cold War question, I, I don't think Putin makes much secret about it. I mean, really, he he, he his sort of sensibility, his sort of geopolitical sensibility, is shaped by the Cold War. Um, he he regards the fact that, that Russia lost it, or the Soviet Union lost it, in inverted commas, uh, as a, a profound humiliation. And what he's now seeking to do is to, to, to win the next Cold War, Cold War II, if you like. Um, and it, it's being fought again. It's being fought uh, in, in a way that, that pays no heed to kind of international law, whether it's starting war in Ukraine, um, assassinating a, a dissident in London, or hacking an American election. He thinks the West is weak. He thinks the West is decadent. He thinks the West is hypocritical. Um, and e even though Russia is not a powerful country, um, it, it is exploiting traditional patterns and methods of KGB espionage to the utmost. Sometimes it works well, sometimes not so well. But, but he, I mean, he, he is a Cold War warrior, but he's a kind of Cold War II warrior uh, in, an, in the age of Facebook and Twitter. And... Um, <laughs> that, that's all there is to it, really. Folks, whatever you think of the Russia situation, Luke's book is called Collusion, Secret Meetings, Dirty Money, and How Russia Helped Trump Win. It's an important book. You should give it a read. Luke Harding, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Josh. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you.